Welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Elbo Rohach and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also at AEI and Yulia Zorza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Łukasz Fiderek, an assistant professor at the Jagiellonian University in Poland and a senior policy fellow at the Institute for Strategic Studies in Krakow, Poland. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. I should also say that Lukash is the executive director of an annual conference which takes place in Krakow, which is dedicated to security matters and to transatlantic relations. I had the chance of participating in that conference earlier this year. It's an excellent event with a very impressive lineup of speakers, which gives you the flavor of the Polish, of the Eastern European conversation. I highly commend it to our listeners. Lukash, we obviously have to start with the recent news from Poland, which had an election with the weekend on, on Sunday. Were you surprised by the results? Well, I was not that much surprised about the final result of uh, the oppositional parties. I was rather surprised with a much lower support which former ruling party in uh, Law and Justice get. Uh, I expected slightly higher uh, numbers here. And there was a lot of talk before the elections about far-right party called Confederacja or Confederation, I guess that we may translate it like this. And they, at some point, uh, were polling up to 15% uh, supports, which is quite a lot for a far-right party having a very uh, a number of fringe individuals among their candidates. And they eventually ended getting around 7%, 7.1 or 2% of, of support. So that was uh, still uh, a bit surprising, especially if uh, you think back about the previous elections and the polls before those elections where the far-right parties were rather underappreciated or the forecasts about their results were below the real numbers. So those were my personal surprises regarding the, those final weeks before the elections and the election itself. And of course, the, the big thing which we should mention here is the turnout, which is the highest turnout in, in the history of Polish democracy. And this is, this is probably the biggest surprise. Of the, of the last Sunday. So what we know is that it's very likely that the um, civic coalition will form a new government with a grouping of, of left of center parties, the new left, and the third way, which is kind of a social, socially conservative EPP grouping of parties. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what you think will change as a result of the formation of the new government in terms of Poland's foreign policy outlook in particular, and, and what are the things that will not change? Well, the big thing about foreign policy is that Donald Tusk is coming back to the game of, of European politics. This will be the, the biggest, single biggest factor influencing the events. He's leader of the civic platform and the civic coalition. We don't know who will get the Minister of Foreign Affairs portfolio. It is highly possible that due to the better than expected, uh, the, the result of the third way, uh, which is the coalition of two parties, one of them is legacy let's say, agrarian party, which is the oldest party in Poland called PSL, and the other is very new, Poland 2050, centered around former journalist Szymon Hołownia. So it is, there are some rumors that maybe uh, one of the two, those two leaders of those two 
centrist parties, which, which will have around 66 MPs in, in the parliament, may get a foreign policy portfolio. That would be a sort of unknown, let's say, for foreign policy. But most probably the gravitas or the, the experience and uh, network and know-how of Donald Tusk will be uh, who will most probably become the next prime minister, will be the, the most visible factor uh, in Polish foreign policy. So there are a lot of hopes of mending finances with Germany. Among the, uh, those who, who voted for Civic Platform, there are a lot of hopes of mending fences or improving the relations with Brussels. And, well, probably there may be some uh, nervousness among European, let's say, sole ally of a peace party, namely Viktor Orban and, and, and the Hungarian uh, government. And, so, yeah, so, so this is, this, these are some obvious uh, obvious thing. Of course, the, the discourse of the Law and Justice Party is and, and was very unfair towards civic platform before the elections, and there was a huge uh, propaganda machine operating against Donald Tusk and the civic platform. Uh, there were a lot of accusations of him or misrepresentation of him as a representative of foreign interests particularly German interests, which is a sort of a sensitive thing in Poland. But the result, uh, the, the solid result of the, the three oppositional parties uh, will uh, gives like the clear mandate to, uh, to, to change the direction of foreign policy. However, we need to say one cautionary word here. Uh, we still have president in charge, President uh, Andrzej Duda, who will be in charge for the next, his term expires in next one and a half year, almost two years. So there will be a cohabitation. We'll, be, we'll have that situation where the government dominated by centrist, uh, center-right and center-left parties will need to cooperate in a way with the president who comes from uh, Law and Justice Party and who proved up until recently to be a loyal ally of uh, the leader of Jarosław Kaczyński, the leader of uh, Law and Justice Party. I wonder if we could tease out some of the uh, particulars of both Polish foreign policy and foreign policy toward Poland as a result of this. And Dalibor, you may wish to chime in. At the broadest level, and certainly in the United States, this is being interpreted as something of an ideological course correction for the Poles. But as you said, Lukasz, this is an unhappy day for Viktor Orban, also for the incoming uh, Slovak government, I would expect as well. And in addition to sort of toning down, I wonder if you can also say this is a rejection of Germany bashing. The final question is, Germany has taken, I think, a lot of criticism and a right criticism for not dealing nearly seriously enough with Poland, for, for sort of not having a Polish policy, if you will. Give me some course correction on any elements of that you feel like commenting on. Yeah, I mean, the, the last part of your question, or the last question is, is quite interesting for me, and it is uh, to the same extent uh, the issue of German internal politics and its perception and stereotypes towards Poland as much as the Polish policy towards Germany. So I, I don't have enough insights to say something original uh, about how those relations will look like from a German perspective. But coming to your, the other question about the, the German bashing, I, I think that it was really crude. I mean, the, the peace Propaganda was extremely crude against Germany and particularly 
the takeover of the public media. I mean, the media landscape in Poland looks like this, that we have a couple of private TV channels, but since the communist time, we, we have that public TV and public radio. And it was something unprecedented what, what happened towards those uh, broadcasters in the, the, the recent years when they, they were changed towards such a crude propaganda. I mean, the intelligent uh, people, even if they supported Law and Justice Party, they were quite distasteful towards what, what they saw in, in the TV and what they heard in, in the radio. So those public TV and, and public radio became the vehicles for extremely crude, primitive propaganda. And one of those day-to-day lines of public TV was that Donald Tusk, uh, Donald Tusk is actually working in the name of German interests, right? So uh, in a sort, you may say, yes, people rejected, uh, rejected that, same as uh, they rejected the referendum, because what we haven't mentioned up till this moment is that the elections were accompanied by the referendum. The, the current law and justice government asked for questions where, which were formulated in a very unfair way. The, the questions regarding opening the borders for migrants, the other question was regarding the forced relocation of migrants. The other was about fans of Poland and the fourth one's about selling Polish public companies towards foreign capital. So most people rejected, most voters, there were, uh, there there was almost 80% of eligible voters voted in the elections, but only 40% voted in the referendum. And in Polish constitutional system, for referendum to be valid, it it needs to get at least 50% of turnout. So so people rejected. And it is interesting from a comparative politics perspective, uh, when you compare that to the other backsliding democracies here in the region, uh, Hungary or, or Turkey, those comparisons were oftentimes made before. And I was often asked about that. And, and here, I guess that there, there, there are a couple of interesting, I, maybe I will highlight two issues. One of them is related to the strategy of, um, of the oppositional parties, that they didn't form a united front, rather, despite different pressures. They, they, they went in three major parties or coalitions. Uh, they were able to appeal to a different demographies, different groups of voters. So uh, the issue of strategy here, and that was a depolarizing movement, right? It, it, was, it was a depolarizing strategy because you, you didn't have just binary option. You had more options to vote, and hence there was a bigger chance of having some disillusioned uh, voters of law and justice to come. They, they wouldn't come to Donald Tusk due, due to the propaganda and due to some number of different reasons, but they were able to flow towards mostly to the third way coalition of parties. Yeah, so so this is one thing which is useful when we want to take some, let's say, lessons learned from, from that recent election. So fighting a, a populist movement, you probably will be better off while uh, having some depolarizational strategy and having wider coalition which cooperates at some point than somehow getting into that polarization rhetoric which is something which usually means that you are playing a game of a populist politicians who are in power and who have more power or more tools to play that game than you as a group of oppositional parties or politicians. Obviously, a lot of things depends on particular institutions and particular voting system in a given country. And the other thing which I wanted, or the last thing regarding to to that, which I wanted to highlight is something which which is so difficult to quantify because that relates to political culture. And there is that 
a tone of contrarianism in, in polit political culture, which sort of, I think, has presented itself uh, during this recent election uh, as well, that, well, Polish political culture used to formulate itself in 19th and, and early 20th century against three different governments rather than working together, right? So due to the partitions of Poland, at least the intelligentsia or those, let's say, influential figures tended to think about themselves as rather contrarian and rather acting with the distrust towards the state. And here what we had was that massive propaganda campaign, which uh, sort of looked like an authoritarian campaigns of Polish People's Republic. And that created that reaction or, or that reaction that, well, we don't want to be treated like, like that, at least among some opinion leaders and some, some parts of uh, urban middle class. I also want to zoom in a little bit onto Ukraine. I remember in the campaign, Donald Tusk putting out there as a major response with a lot of effect internationally too, promising that we, Poland, will provide a under his government, unconditional aid for Ukraine in the context of the grain ban and in the context of Prime Minister Morawiecki uh, mentioning a few weeks ago that Poland has given everything that they can give, that the modern weapons are going to be kept by Poland. And so, on the other hand, Poland has been a very powerful lobbyist in Washington and in Brussels for Ukraine. And we're getting into dire times in which, for the first time, Ukraine is not in the headlines anymore. It's not for two weeks now I'm on the front page. So tell us what that means in terms of bilateral Polish-Ukrainian relations, but also in terms of the larger Western effort for the war. Well, that's a good question. I would say that we have here that sort of natural dynamic in bilateral relations that we had some this unprecedented effort by Polish civil society and to some extent by the, by the Polish government with that effect of all hands on board. We are helping Ukraine with everything we have as much as we can. And this mobilization, as usually in, in social uh, realities, was quick to reach some peak and now we are seeing some lowering those levels of that mobilization among civil society and among the politicians. I think sort of in both countries, obviously Ukrainian situation is much different, but it should be also taken into account. Those events from the last two months, basically, deterioration of bilateral relations is sort of natural, I would say. On the other hand, the in US you would say bipartisan support, in Poland reality we would say omnipartisan support for Ukraine is prevalent. I mean, except Confederacja Party, those which get those seven point something percent of support during the elections, you don't have influential voices which would in any way reject the need of supporting Ukrainians, supporting both militarily, humanitarily, and also supporting them in, in their broader endeavor of rejecting Russian imperialism and integration into either the EU or NATO. So I don't see that the, paradoxically this portfolio, the Ukrainian portfolio, it is sort of very important. I, I don't perceive it as that, that this portfolio will be highly affected by the change of the government. It will be one of those policy directions or one of those policies which will be affected the least rather than the, than the most. Uh, having said that, I think that a large part of the dynamic 
uh, relates to not bilateral relations, but the relations in that triangle of Warsaw, Kiev and Brussels. And in that respect, having more vocal Polish voice may be useful for, for, for Ukraine as well. But this is, these are just the general, very general view and a lot of you know, small things may happen. The grain deal is an extremely complicated issue, which uh, which involves a lot of interests, that, like the business interests of, of a number of players, not only uh, Polish farmers, particularly from the eastern Poland, uh, but also the, the big business, the big agricultural traders and vendors who are uh, involved. They, they have their capital investments in Ukraine and in Poland as well, as well as the issue of maneuvering before EU-Ukraine uh, negotiations will start, because a large part of those negotiations will be about agricultural policy, right? Of course, seeing that from Ukraine's perspective, it's it's the, the very vital matter. After destruction of large part of their heavy industry, uh, agriculture is such an important part of their economy. But agriculture is also a, a hugely sensitive, sensitive issue in the EU. As as you probably know, the, the largest part of EU common budget is dedicated towards uh, supporting agricultural or, or towards agricultural policy. EU is uh, very sensitive, or, or EU uh, farmers, particularly countries like France uh, or, or Poland, are very sensitive towards that, is reflected in the elections and a number of other issues. So, general view, let's think about not only bilateral relations, but about the triangle. And I think that the better or more vocal Polish voice within the EU, more mainstream voice may help Ukrainian endeavors in the future. But a lot of things depends on, on small details. Not just in Brussels, I would like to add, but very much also in Washington. This is particularly important for, for American uh, viewers and listeners. Yeah, when it comes to uh, that, I would say that of course, still the current government of law and justice, the relation with the Biden administration were, they were doing more or less okay after a very bumpy start, as you may remember. So it will not be as much of a game changer here, I guess, but definitely in some ways, I may think that this current government may be a little bit more difficult player for the US administration because they, they've been very pro-American because they, they had no other policy direction, right? They had the only interlocutors or almost only interlocutors in Washington DC and in, in, in Budapest, right? So these are just two capitals to visit. Now, uh, current government will be able to communicate freely with Berlin, Paris and some other European capitals. So in, in that sense, they may have a more multidimensional foreign policy, but being close to the US, having being on the same page with the US regarding the Ukraine, definitely be the priority. I, I don't see any change coming here this way. If I can just stay on the, the sort of European theme for, for a bit, because it strikes me that it's very much in Poland's long-term interest that, that Ukraine be successful not only in the war, but also in its European aspirations. You mentioned the issue of, of agriculture, which obviously is a, is a challenge, just like it was a challenge for the EU at the time of Eastern Europe's initial accession, including Poland's accession, and that led to revisions to, to, to how the common agriculture policy is structured and, and, and how it's to be made sustainable financially. So, so there will have to be change on that front. But it strikes me that, I mean, Ukraine is and will be after the war in a, in a position that will be far less favorable than, than the situation facing countries like Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic in, 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 in the early noughties. So, so I think there'll be a strong case to be made for a more creative approach to enlargement, so to speak, so that 
Ukraine country of 14 billion is not stuck in a limbo for the next 15 years in a sort of Turkey-like or Western Balkans-like situation. And I think Poland's leadership will be essential in you know, coming up with sort of creative approaches towards making sure that, that the Ukrainians see that there are tangible benefits from, from associating themselves closer with the, with the EU, as opposed to turning the EU membership into a binary choice between just being in, being out. How advanced is the conversation on these topics, especially in, in the sort of platforma foreign policy circles. At least I don't see that it would be very advanced at this moment, that there are some inputs coming. I mean, the fact about the creativity that you've mentioned, I mean, a lot of things has already happened, which were unthinkable before, like granting the access, which is part of the problem, current problem, but granting the the unrestricted access of a Ukrainian agricultural product to the common market, it is an unprecedented decision. It was taken by the EU. So there will be a lot of maneuvering here and there are a number of decisions which should be made. And, and the EU is not a static structure, right? The EU is undergoing and will be undergoing a number of internal reforms. Having an open conversation with the, with the government in Warsaw will help in shaping those, those discussions. But what will be the concrete creative steps which should be taken? I, I haven't heard about any papers or, or precise prescriptions which in, in the Polish in information space or in that oppositional bubble, let's say expert bubble. It seems to me that it's a sort of a bit too early. What I've heard uh, uh, and what I'm hearing is th there are a lot of worries about some issues which are not, they, they don't look like a very policy level issues, but they, they, they matter. For instance, the brain drain, like the fact that, that due to the brain drain and due to the war, which sort of speeded up that process, there will be not enough competent legislators or not only legislators, but the, the port or the know-how support within the, say, Ukrainian lawyers to deal with this enormous task of aligning the, your legal system with the EU requirements. So the small issues, this is something which we, we were doing in Institute of Strategic Studies in Krakow, like training or building up some competences towards the member of Ukrainian civil society. These are the things which at least I was close to and, and what we were trying to, to do, somehow indirectly trying to prepare that accession process. But these are like a grassroots perspective. And when it comes to policy-wide issues, there, there is a lot of, lot of uncharted water ahead of us. Before we transfer or shift over to talking about Israel, I just wanted to get one last word in here and to as a follow-up. It does seem to me that the reconstruction phase and integration phase for Ukraine is going to be something that's really not the kind of thing the EU has had to deal with and not Europe or the United States since after World War II, just in the sense of the physical destruction, the incredible challenge that there will be of demining large swaths of really valuable Ukrainian territory and the repatriation to the degree that you know, that's going to go forward of displaced persons. Lukash, I'd just be interested in your assessment. 
I'm not much versed in the, the mindset of politicians in Brussels. I'm based in Poland. I'm quite putting some attention to the Polish politics and the Sauver neighborhood, which we will be able to also to talk a bit about, namely those countries which are usually called Middle East and North Africa. So from what I see from that angle is that the short answer is no. The elites, they don't see the potential, they don't see the challenges uh, related to those uh, countries which are bordering Europe, which have their own political dynamic, and they have uh, enormous challenges ahead of it. And when we want to, to hear a cautionary story for Ukraine, we should look at Tunisia, because Tunisia is a cautionary story for the EU politicians, or the Commission of politicians, and parliament, uh, EU parliament politicians, where we had a comparatively nice success story after 2011, after the Arab Spring. But due to the uh, lack of attention, due to the lack of political will to open up some trade-related mechanisms to, to support Tunisian economy, the country has, I mean, EU did very little to help Tunisian democracy to survive in that difficult transitional phase from autocracy towards democracy. And Tunisia right now is in a dire straits when we want to say what is the state of political freedoms right now with Kai Said, dismantling civil society, dismantling civic rights in Tunisia in an extremely swift way, in a very quick manner. And the reason why he's able to do it is that he's presenting himself to Tunisians as the one who is like a strongman who who may tackle mostly economic difficulties. Those economic difficulties of, of Tunisia, the nation of 10 million people, could have been resolved with the creative support of the EU and by overcoming some national egoisms and some interests of some business sectors. We haven't been able to do it regarding Tunisia. And this is, again, I would say, a cautionary story. And the time will tell, will we be able to do it as the, as the EU towards much larger country with much bigger problems, right? Also, also the challenge is, is on a different scale because Ukraine aspires at being an EU member state. So Tunisia would have never become an EU member state. I think it would have taken a much smaller lift to help sustain Tunisian democracy during that window of opportunity that, that was really wide open for, for many, many years. And the West basically was looking elsewhere during that whole time. We should probably at this point leverage your expertise as a Middle East and North Africa expert. We were not planning to discuss the Middle East when we were scheduling this podcast, but obviously on 7th of October, the terror attacks struck across Israel and there are questions about where the conflict in Gaza moves next, how localized, how big it's going to be. Perhaps in the first instance, it would be just useful to, to get your sense of, of the Polish debate and Polish reactions to the subject. How much of a cross-party consensus is there for supporting Israel? How much the aftermath of the terror attacks fed into into the election campaign or any other observations that you might have to share with us, I think would be would be greatly appreciated. If we are to do so, sorry to interrupt, uh, then let me ask you two more questions in that, if we're not staying within just a political but also public opinion, because I think here we like to either have someone to get a perspective from the ground if one of us is not coincidentally there. And 
I find that, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I find that we have in Central and Eastern Europe quite an interesting debate around what is happening in terms of where people are lying beyond politics, public opinion. We are seeing a different matter in Western Europe where we've already seen the first few signs of violence um, just last night. But in Central and Eastern Europe, we have a completely different demographic. And I've heard a few experts over the last few days saying from the region saying, well, Central and Eastern Europeans are fiercely pro-Israel. And so can you comment on that? Because of course, it's a lot more differentiated than that. And I think Poland is particularly interesting in that case because we see in the United States major polarization, including on this issue, particularly when we're looking at the polls in the Democratic Party over the last 24 or 48 hours or so. And we've seen Poland compared in the larger political campaign to the United States in terms of polarization. So what's your feeling? Where are polls in the polls <laughs> on this matter? The, the conflict which we are talking about pertains to extremely foundational issues of modern day politics or political culture, if you will. One of them is Holocaust, the other is Islamophobia, right? Or Holocaust and the issues related to the Second World War, they do constitute a large part of modernity, of Western modernity and of, of Polish modernity, Central European modernity as well. So some part of, of that conflict is seen through the perspective or through the prism of the Holocaust but and the Second World War. Some part of the political spectrum sees that, uh, sees that conflict mostly through the prism of Islamophobia and the fear, which is around since 2015, of mass migration. And this is the fear of not mass migration from the countries of Eastern Europe, it is a fear or of, of mass migration from the Muslim majority countries, right? So we have those two huge elephants in the room. And my perception is that people tend to perceive Arab-Israeli conflict through the, 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 they interpret the events which are happening in Palestine through their fears, their stereotypes related to one of those or both uh, big issues, right? So this is like the, the first statement here for, for opening the discussion. Is Polish or Central Eastern European public opinion tinted towards uh, Israel in relation to the, the Western Europe? Probably yes. I would say probably yes. It's, it's not a very big difference though, I, but I would say that yes, I, I would agree that Especially when you when you think about intellectuals, about opinion leaders, you've, you've got more people who'd rather voice their support towards Israel. We had a number of, uh, after uh, 7th of October, we had a number of uh, influential either journalists or writers, TV or, or media personalities, which voiced openly their support towards defense of, of Israel. Of course, you may say it's a psychological effect. Israel was attacked at that point, so it's it seemed like a normal thing. But in general, I would say that as in many other societies, political right is rather pro-Israeli and political left is rather pro-Palestinian. And this stands valid also in Poland 
and probably uh, in the other Central European countries. And the thing is that uh, when you look into the political spectrum in a comparative manner, left is weak in Poland. We have right now they, their leftist coalition get some uh, eight or nine percent, something around that in those, those recent polls. So when you think that right rather supports Israel, left rather supports Palestine, and you have such a the composition of political scene where you have a lot of rightist center and, and, and center and rightist parties and some small far-right party that sort of comes together, right? Those building blocks are coming together. The other thing is, and coming back to a little bit more towards Dalibor's question, the Polish bilateral relations with Israel are to be extremely difficult, particularly when we had uh, dynamics where you had populists in, in power in Israel and you had rightist populists in power in Poland. So, I mean, that was a very uh, dangerous mixture and we had those relations extremely strained regarding a number of issues. I don't know if we want to get into that history, but let's just state that here that those bilateral Polish-Israeli relations in the recent four years, they've been highly, highly volatile. But regarding the Palestinian issues, so, so while the current foreign policy of Poland is seen as rather pro-Israeli than pro-Palestinian, but with a lot of issues, a lot of difficult issues, untackled issues in bilateral relations, Regarding Palestine, we have that legacy of being close, similarly to Slovakia or, or Czechia uh, or Hungary, of being very close to the uh, Palestinian authority in this previous period, during the communist times. But that period created a lot of linkages regarding Palestinian diaspora in Poland, which is not very big, it's certainly not big in, in, in Europe, Western European or American standards. But it is here, here those people are also in the other Central Eastern European states, they serve as a link. Plus, since late 1980s, Poland recognized Palestinian authority as a state, so we are one of those EU member states which actually are, are ahead of the majority of EU states on that uh, file, right? So, so this is this, like this, this balancing act. And coming back to what, uh, what was the perception of the recent events, the, the government did capitalize on that uh, by doing a very swift uh, military uh, evacuation of Polish citizens from Israel. Uh, to Poland, that was something which dominated headlines, and that uh, that was commented positively also by the member, some members of the oppositional media. So uh, that was something which which brought attention. Of course, there is another issue, like one of those difficult issues which are in Polish-Israeli relation, is the the question of Polish-Israeli citizens, because due to the historical facts, a lot of Israeli Jews have their Polish ancestors, they have their Polish lineage. And one of the things which was not very up to liking to, to Israeli government was that Israeli citizens were applying for Polish citizenship and they were getting it. So it was not seen as a positive development from, a, from an Israeli security perspective. And some of those people were repatriated or were evacuated in those recent days. We have also one Polish-Israeli citizen who is held hostage by Hamas terrorists right now in the Gaza Strip and sort of well-known, prominent civil society member who did a lot of good work to, to mending defenses among the Polish and Israeli societies. So, so there is also this aspect of that recent situation. But in general, Polish public opinion was so much focused on internal issues as it usually goes when you have an elections in a country. So the looming war in, in the Middle East, looming larger war, was not very much in the main focus. And when it comes to the war itself and its prospects, of course, the big question is now regarding Hezbollah 
and regarding uh, the decision which will be taken in Tehran. My understanding is that the timing of Hamas attack probably coordinated with Tehran, but it was not perfect from, from an Iranian point of view. And now, uh, well, we have that escalatory ladder. We'll see in the coming days and weeks. Uh, of course, it's, it's a very important uh, President Biden's visit in, in Israel in the coming hours, I guess, from, from now, uh, which will limit those uh, that escalation. But we are here in this sort of First World War uh, situation, right? Where if, if uh, Israel will uh, enter to, to Gaza, Hezbollah may feel compelled to, to attack Israel. And the, the rocket arsenal of Hezbollah is enormous, right? It's enormous. Of course, Hezbollah is closely associated with uh, I- Iran, but they, they have their own decision-making structure. They have their uh, their decision-making autonomy. Uh, it is not perfect timing for Hezbollah right now in, in, in Lebanon as well, but they may feel compelled to attack. Should it happen, then we, we are going to face very tense days uh, in the Middle East. The only sort of positive, to, to end on the positive note, is that usually those, those wars were short historically when we look at, at those confrontations, that none of the, those fighting those wars have resources similar to, let's say, Russia to sustain long-term operations. But it doesn't change the thing that should the escalation happen, it may bring an enormous casualties among civilian populations, in particular both in Israel, Palestinian territories, and Lebanon. Lukas, first of all, thank you so much for this. And I suspect that we'll have to do a special episode on the Polish-Israel relationship alone, because you sort of hinted at so many interesting threads that, that I would love to pull, particularly about the relationship between the sort of populist right in Israel and populist right in Europe, where Poland seems to be following a slightly different pattern from what we've seen elsewhere. But but I am indeed afraid we've run out of time by this stage. So again, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. From me, Dalibor Rohaj, and... For me, Giselle Donnelly, and... Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. Find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.